0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org.
1: Closing statements often carry special weight particularly when we have time, like in a handwritten letter, usually then in those settings we give thought to, how do I want to end this exactly? That's certainly true for the Apostle Paul as he concludes his letter to Timothy that we've been looking at for some months now. What's important? Important enough that it be the last word that I gave to this pastor, Timothy, and to this church there in Ephesus. How do I want to end this? And what he decided, that's what we find at the end of 1 Timothy, the verses we're going to look at today. Basically, a set of paired commands with an encouragement. And as we look at it today, we're, we're going to look at those last couple of verses, we're going to gather what Paul thought was most important from all this letter, which is, has been very much about the structure of the church, its, it's way that it's built, its way that's put together, and particularly how we as Christian individuals are to behave in this household of God, which is the church. Remember that from chapter 3? That's a fair summary of what the book is about, how we are to carry ourselves in this, in this body called the church. We've touched on a bunch of different things. Maybe some of those things will kind of come back to mind as we skip through it a little bit this morning in different ways. But what's most important How should I end this? Well, that's what we're going to look at today. Last couple verses. I'm going to read just the end of 1 Timothy chapter 6. For time's sake, I'm not going to read the beginning. I was going to read the first seven verses also, and you'd notice, actually, they're pretty similar. Bookends. He started there, and he kind of ends in the same spot. But for time's sake, I'm just going to read the end and then draw three observations. 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 20. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. That's the end. Three observations, here's the first. We must guard the faith which God entrusted to us. We must guard the faith which God entrusted to us. This is the main command found in verse 20, and it's loaded up for emphasis with this, with this very emotional appeal, Oh, Timothy. But it's not actually an expression from Paul about how much he cares about Timothy. It's an expression about the task that lies before Timothy. Timothy is something really important here. Guard the deposit entrusted to you. The language here continues on using this language of of wealth and riches and treasure that we saw last week in 17 to 19. What he does here is he sketches out something that would be very familiar in the cultural setting of that day. Think back, if, if you lived in a day, as they did, when there were not locks on your windows and doors and you didn't have a personal home safe, and there weren't banks with vaults and safety deposit boxes, if you had some wealth or some money or some treasure of some sort and you wanted to travel, what'd you do? What'd you do with your precious belongings? With your your pile of gold coins? Well, you could take it with you, maybe, but that could be burdensome in a bunch of different ways. So what people did was... They entrusted their precious things to a close friend and said, here, keep this in your house. Watch after this for me until I return. Of course, everybody understood that when they would have read this because it had happened. They'd seen it, they'd done it, it had been done to them. And they realized what that means is I need to keep this and guard it unmarred. And so you didn't fool around with it, lest it be broken. If it was money, you didn't, like, invest it or spend it, lest it be lost." If it was a good, you didn't repaint it or rework it or carve it in a different way because you thought it would be better. You kept it as it was until the person returned and you gave it back to him. Safe and sound. Unmarred, untainted, unspoiled. Just as it was. So too with what's been entrusted to Timothy and to the church and in fact every Christian. So, Understanding that, the first immediate question would be, so what is it that's been entrusted? What's been deposited here with us? And coming as this does at the end of the book, we have a pretty good idea. Starting right off in chapter 1, verse 3, with Paul's assignment of Timothy to put a stop to false teaching. There's this this theme been running through the whole book of a body of truth that's threatened is endangered in some way or another. It's called a lot of different things in different places. It's called the apostolic charge, the truth, the faith, sound words, godly teaching, the commandment, the deposit, as well as, in chapter 1, verse 11, very similar phrasing, the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I, Paul, have been entrusted. So whatever it's called throughout all the different chapters of this book, What we're dealing with here is the body of the Christian faith, the faith, created by God and delivered to us, the central focus of which is the gospel of grace. So if you think of it like this, and it's a good way to think about it, you've got a big web And right in the middle of it, you've got the gospel of grace itself. And everything else, all the rest of the faith, connects to it in some way or another. It's all part of a whole, the center of which is the gospel. The message from God about what God has done in Jesus to rescue and redeem human beings. People separated from God who cannot find or create or earn our way back to him. That's who people, that's who we all are, were. God's requirement, God's offer and his requirement is that we come to Jesus in faith, humbly, surrendering to him, and then what we find is his cross is sufficient payment, the only sufficient payment for our sin. That's at the center of that. And then what's working out of that in the faith are all the different ways that God then works into us to grow us in godliness. Minds and hearts, you recall this from the book, turn towards him first and then living out that turned towards him in, in our actions, in our words, godly minds and godly lives. So all of that, whether it's called the truth or the commandment or the sound teaching or the faith, the gospel of God's grace, All of that, guard it, Timothy. Church. That's job one. This book has a bunch of things in it. Many things. You recall we talked about roles in the book, men and women, and elders and deacons, and and evangelism, how God is pursuing everybody in the world. And How to establish pastors and how to take care of widows in the church. Lots of different things, but all of those are a collection of job two. Job one, you can't do anything else if we haven't done job one first. Guard the faith, the center of which is the gospel. So, how do we do that? Well, first, we have to know it, of course. Be sure that we appoint pastors and elders who know it and can teach it, can model it, will defend it. And Because it comes from the scriptures, God's given it to us in the Bible, then what what that means is pastors and elders who will know the Bible and can properly explain it to to all of us and then model what the Bible says, not, not being original, but being actually very ordinary and old. We're to keep it unchanged, keep the doctrines uncompromised. This that we have received from God and not created. So there's a, a constant need to be aware of, if I say anything new and novel, it's probably wrong. It doesn't come from my mind. It doesn't come from our experience. It comes from God and his scriptures long ago. It doesn't come to one man somewhere or another. It comes to everybody, clear and open. So that much probably makes sense. And probably if most of us were to be asked, "Well, how do you, how do you guard the deposit?" we would have, we would have thought about, "Well, I've got to take care of the Bible, I've got to make sure it's properly taught and I've got to guard against all errors." We'll talk a little bit more, more about that in the second point. Yeah. But there's a danger there, something else we should think about, because there's a bit of a risk that if we just did that and We shouldn't not do that. I'm saying just did that. What we would have is we'd have the Bible properly understood, properly delineated. We'd have doctrine, sound doctrine, the truth well kept. We'd be orthodox. We'd have proper doctrine. But the danger is that we might have orthodoxy, unchanged, whole, on the shelf, or locked away in a safe deposit box somewhere entrusted to us kept safe and not used and ironically that ends up undermining or creating the environment that undermines the faith eventually maybe think of like a person who wants to preserve an old antique car you can't take an old car and park it in a garage for 50 years and never touch it. It's going to deteriorate. All the seals and gaskets will fall apart and rust will come along. You, you can't to change the analogy. You can't say to a, to a, a person, suppose you've got a woman who, who wants to take good care of her physical heart. Well, she watches what she puts in, yeah, but if she sits down sedentary for 50 years, how's that going to go? ironically, you, you might think, I want to preserve something, and so what I do is I, I, I get it whole, I get it right, and then I park it over here and never touch it, and that's actually how it deteriorates. You've got to use it, in fact. Carefully, wise it? But you've got to use it. You've got to exercise a little bit. And so, too, with the faith, the gospel. We guard the faith best may be counterintuitive, but we guard the faith best by constantly, openly, explicitly, verbally, mentally, and emotionally handling it, playing with it, touching it, standing on it, interacting with it, passing it around, handing it out. We guard it, in other words, we keep it safe, not by cloistering it away from the world, but by bringing it into close contact with real life in the world. Constantly, completely public and central by using it. In other words, by living very deliberate, gospel-driven lives. Because, here's the logic in this, because living very deliberate, gospel-driven lives in contact with others in contact with other living very deliberate gospel driven lives that's what produces in you the life of joy and power and communion with God and freedom you you put you carry the gospel with you into contact with other and you find out oh something here. Here's what I mean. You come home one day, depending on whatever life stage you're in, you come home from work or school or practice or a big presentation or a doctor's appointment or from your child's doctor's appointment. And you either have the feeling or you know very well that that didn't go okay. That was not good. Either you know it or you think it. What do you do? You just bumped into something. What do you do? Think positively. Actually, I'm probably being a little tired hard on myself. It probably was okay. Is that what you do? Do you Pick up the phone, dial your best friend for encouragement, so that he or she will tell you, actually, it'll be fine. You're you're good, you're it's good, it's okay. Do you begin to immediately like game plan how you're gonna fix it tomorrow? What you can do, which websites you can search for answers, how you can address the problem, overcome it, call back that person that you left on bad terms. Seek out the solution, find a different doctor? Do you stop off at the bar, the grocery store, to find something to suppress, to push it away? Do you go home and spend the next rest of the night on the internet just trying to feel good? Push it away, drown it out. You bumped into something and then you tried something. Positive thinking or encouragement of friends or tried to just forget about it. Solve the problem yourself. And what you'll find there is some collection of a works righteousness approach to removing my guilt And making myself good enough, that leaves me burdened and afraid and stressed. Or maybe you'll find a a pursuit of pleasure in the world just distracts me for a little while and then in the end, the pain and trouble comes back. The pursuit of significance in the things of the world leaves me in the end feeling insignificant, and all that stuff passes away. It's fleeting. When you bump into stuff in the world and you try something from the world, what you find is this is enslaving, really hard, and empty. But if you have that, uh, this is maybe a little hard to follow, but if you have that kind of experience, if you're coming home from that appointment and you're also an Orthodox Christian, what you might conclude is, orthodoxy did me no good. I got all the doctrine stashed away in my safe deposit box. I get it. I'm there. Yep, uh uh-huh. Sure, I checked off the pat. Yep, uh uh-huh. And I'm burdened and heavy laden and I'm trying to figure out what I can do to make my life work, and it's not working out. So orthodoxy must be garbage. And that undermines orthodoxy. You want to protect the faith. you got to bring that into the setting. And when you come home from your child's doctor appointment that did not go well, what do you do? You bring the gospel of God's grace into that and say, Lord, what am I going to do? but my eyes are on you. That hurts, and I'm scared to death. Or embarrassed, if it's a different context. Ashamed. Or really frustrated. It's a different context still. You bring this fact into contact with the other. And you stand on this faith. Faith. Say, Lord, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. Please make your truth. This promise that you gave me Christ. Here's my orthodoxy coming into play. And along with Christ, you gave me all things. And so I know that your love for me is vast and wide and long and high and deep. And nothing can separate me from that. And so you have this in your hand. You saw it coming. You are at work in it. I don't know how, but I know who. You. Help. Help. Help me to see and to know that I am dearly beloved and secured and significant and forgiven because you chose me to be in Christ, not because I did it and made myself good enough, because you did. So I repent if that's needed. I cast my heart on you where I was running away if that's needed. Whatever it is, you turn to him and say, I believe, help my unbelief. And what you find there. What you find there, oh my goodness, this faith is true. It's real. He is true. He is real. The faith shows itself real and alive, and God shows himself good and enough. And that guards the faith because who throws away what's precious and proven? Who distorts what is already sufficient and perfect? We must guard the gospel, guard the faith, And we do it best by bringing it out of the bank vault and bringing it into the trenches and saying, here, let me bump that kind of life into the real stuff of life and stand in this gospel and live it out and believe the promises and cry out when I don't, but engage with this God who is real. And he shows up and says, look, and you see. So this is not just a call, Christian, to remain orthodox, but to set your minds on things above and live orthodoxy for your joy. For your joy. We have to guard, we have to guard the faith. And we do that best by living it out. Secondly though, there's another piece, something we have to avoid. We must, second observation, we must avoid everything contrary to the faith, no matter how popular. We must avoid everything contrary to the faith, no matter how popular. Get this from the middle of verse 20. It says, avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called quote-unquote knowledge. That's how my English translation reads. It's trying to express the important sense of command that's in this, in this statement here. But if you're looking at the NIS or maybe some other translations, you notice something helpful. This isn't actually, as I, as I read it, this isn't actually a separate sentence with a standalone separate command. Verse 20 is actually one gigantic long sentence. English translators broke it up to make it more readable in English. But it's actually one long sentence with two related exhortations. They're linked, and that tells us something. You might put it like this. Guard this, the faith, guard this in part by avoiding that. That's that's the link. So, if you want to protect this, reject that. So the first part is what we have to do, and the second part is, is we also have to do that. But it tells us something about how to do the first part. That's the linkage. Guard the faith specifically by avoid this irreverent babble, empty, meaningless talk, babble. And it's irreverent. What he means by that is, is it's godless. It's not turned towards God, but rather is turned away from him. So Paul probably had something in mind, that particular context. We noticed in the beginning, if you were to look back at chapter 1, he says some similar things in the beginning about myths and endless genealogies, etc. We talked more about that back then. But the basic idea, there certainly could be things out in the world that that would qualify for this. Probably the endless debate about politics would be one of them. But he means, in particular, something that's within the the context of the church that seems to be kind of spiritual, religious, and people go round and round and around about it, babbling. But it actually doesn't turn us towards God, but ironically turns us away from Him. So maybe in our world, something I might call pseudo-Christian theology and deeper teaching. It's not an official category, I just made it up. But if you think about pseudo-Christian theology and deeper teaching, there's all kinds of stuff out there. You might think of extremely well, I might say overdeveloped end times outlines. Or to going a different direction. A a book about the psychoanalysis of the Apostle Paul. I, I promise you, that's somebody's seminary doctoral dissertation. Probably a bunch of people. Applying modern psychiatric techniques to the Apostle Paul. And it seems like both those things, it seems like, well, that's about the Bible, that's the Apostle Paul, that's good, It's helpful, right? End time stuff's in the Bible, that's important, right? We talked about that a few weeks ago, sure. But ironically, it becomes godless babble, irreverent babble, when what we do is we find ourselves reading the Bible trying to understand Paul, not God. Or read the Bible trying to fill in the blanks for my outline, not grow my faith and trust and dependence on God. something spiritual that's actually, ironically, godless. Maybe also we could include what I might call Christian best life practices. Again, I made up that term, but what I'm referring to here are things that kind of tend to pop up within the church and become kind of camps or schools usually around some sort of a, of a life area, like parenting or schooling or dating or financial investment or healthcare, something like that. Little cottage industries develop, and there are books written and seminars held and conferences and whatnot. A lot of that stuff is fine. Some can be extreme, but a lot of it's fine as an alternative to consider. But the problem becomes when it becomes the focus. And ironically, the quoting Bible verses and handling the Bible, it draws us away from God and draws us towards the proper performance of some technique as the way I assure the proper raising of my children, as the way I secure my health. I find the principles and I do them and I focus on doing them properly and well. And ironically, the Bible just led me away from God. How did that happen? I'm not depending on God. I'm trusting me at the conference, reading the book written by the person who's invested their life in it. It can be good and it can be bad. Avoid it when it's bad. Avoid irreverent babble. And also take care to avoid what the verse calls contradictions. That is, teaching that contradicts the teaching of the faith so godless babble doesn't contradict the faith it just isn't exactly the faith contradictions take the faith and say no Paul taught such and such however we all now know that this and this is better Jesus said this, but actually we should do that. The Bible teaches, but I teach, contradictions. And it's usually presented to us, kind of sold to us in a particular way, as the verse points out, as a bit of a more enlightened, a more insightful, a more helpful knowledge So-called knowledge, put that in quotes. That's how it sneaks in. Sometimes it's a false teacher who somehow gains a platform in, in the church in some way, and claims a superior insight into life and human existence and how we work and how we're best healed and made full and mature. Sometimes you just get it from turning on the TV and hearing it straight from the source. always going to add on something about how now in the modern day our superior science or superior psychology or superior philosophy the way our modern world you you hear this right I mean the way our modern world has advanced and become more compassionate and more loving and more tolerant so we know that's not right anymore I mean this is what's better And it usually sounds kind of good, and it's, of course, popular. Where does the list begin? I don't know, I picked two things. Probably, I think, two things we've all met that are really common threats today. Some contradictions related to the exclusivity of Christ and to the Bible's sexual ethics. The biblical Christian message, the faith, is really clear that Christ crucified is the only way to be saved. The only way to heaven. Conscious, explicit faith in him alone is the only way to be forgiven by God. Clear. Exclusive. Jesus is exclusive. And the Bible is also equally clear that God designed sex... So is God in favor of sex, yes or no? Yes, thank God, literally. God designed sex. Sex is good and it is not everything and it isn't permissible in all situations. Sex is permissible within the one man, one woman covenant of marriage only. Really clear. But of course, these teachings, and a whole bunch of others too, but I picked these two because I think these are pretty common, and they are, they are clear contradictions in the world. These teachings of many others are openly contradicted in our country today, even by many who call themselves Christians. Just this week, a, a former pastor, well-known, very influential pastor, Instagram post, I'm not a Christian, I'm divorcing my wife, and by the way, let me apologize to the LGBTQ community. I was wrong about that too. Just this week. And reading that, I then was alert to another headline that was kind of linked to it in some way. Reality TV show contestant, female, has sex with one of the contestants on the TV show while affirming she's a Christian, is really upset that all the Christians who are posting on her Facebook page and whatnot saying that she's contradicted the faith. I can be a Christian and be sex positive. Jesus loves me. I'm forgiven. This is all fine. That was this week. Behind all of that, is the claim always to, to like be more enlightened people, to have a deeper understanding and knowledge of how, how the world really is. That old fuddy-duddy stuff taught by old white men who wear ties and aren't out of touch. Sex is only for marriage. <laughs> the belief that, how, how can they get off saying that Oh, come on, kind, well-meaning, loving people of any and every lifestyle and any and every religion, including none, should be allowed to do what they want with whomever they want and be okay with it as long as everybody's okay with it. And after all, God is a God of love and he's compassionate and gracious and he, he, he would be welcoming of that. How ridiculous and unenlightened and backwards it would be to say otherwise. Obviously, I'm mocking that a little bit here. But that's everywhere, right? Everywhere. A flat contradiction. And people embrace it and wander away from the faith. People in the church embrace it and wander away from the faith. The verse warns Timothy new people we probably know people. They weren't guarding the faith and they left it behind. We have to avoid this. There's the command. Avoid, steer clear from, reject irreverent babble and contradictions that are falsely called knowledge. So we have to reject that and say no, that's contrary. But we have to avoid wisely Not just by saying, don't do that, but by understanding what's gone wrong. Think think into this for a second. I, I think this is important. What lies behind a flat contradiction of the faith is not study of the text. The text is really clear. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Keep the marriage bed pure. Thou shalt not commit adultery. I mean, as Mark Twain once said, the Bible's a big book. There's stuff in it that's difficult, sure. But Mark Twain said, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that give me trouble, it's the parts of the Bible that I do understand that give me trouble. It's clear. So it's not, a, it's not a, like a, a close exegesis of the Bible that, that leads us into contradiction of the Bible. The faith given is clear. Think like this, though. Think about this. When Satan first came to tempt Eve away from God, what happened there? He asked her, did God really say? And the answer was crystal clear. Well, Yes, he did say. <laughs> I mean, for sure, he said. And Satan wants to contradict that teaching, right? He wants to bring in a contrary teaching, but he doesn't go at it logically. He keeps coming at her, and he jiggles the handle on a different door. Not, not the logic exegesis, what did God actually say door. He jiggles the door of the heart, and that one's open. He keeps coming at her. Oh, okay, okay never mind that. Eve Eve, come, come imagine something with me. Come over here, Eve. Satan Satan says to Adam, you, you stand right there. Come over here, Eve. What would it be like, can you imagine? To be ruler? What would it be like to, to have the knowledge? of good and evil, and to see it all, to understand everything. Knowledge is power, after all. And you would see everything. You'd know how everything works. You'd know what would become of and what, would be, what should be avoided. And you would, you would see it, and you could govern that. Can you imagine to be enlightened and liberated from someone else, from being dependent? And her heart began to dance with the imagined, so desirable, and alluring possibilities And then as Tim Keller once traced out human nature, this is what happened. Keller says, what the heart loves, the will then wants, and the mind then rationalizes so as to make reasonable and permissible. That's how we work. That's who we are. What the heart loves, the will then wants. And the mind then rationalizes so as to make reasonable and permissible. People are ready and willing to contradict the faith because they want something else that they have imagined and seen as more beautiful and more desirable. I want that other person, that freedom or that feeling or their embrace, or maybe it's the approval of those other people, to be commended as someone who was with it and enlightened and in the know, not narrow-minded and bigoted. I long to be accepted and loved by someone else, by something else, by others. And so I'm willing then to rearrange my beliefs to get what my heart longs for and I think I can't live without. That's what's going on. The issue is actually not first here. The issue is first here. So just saying that's not logically true does not matter. We've got to get at the heart first. We've got to get at our loves because people, fundamentally at the bottom level, we are pursuing life Pursuing what we think is hopeful, what we think delivers to us good and joy and pleasure. And so we have to recognize that and fight it on its own ground. Jonathan Edwards, long ago, when dealing with people who were in his his area, who were walking away from the faith in pursuit of pleasure, Edwards said this, and this is beautiful advice. He understood all this, and he said, "'Tis pleasure that they seek? Very well, then." We will fight fire with fire. Edwards is saying, I'm not going to fight fire with logic, fire with with exegesis. You want pleasure? Very good. Let's talk about pleasure, pleasure forevermore. I want to have that conversation. Let's talk about joy. Let's talk about it in depth, really. For that to happen, To get at the heart. Timothy, guard the faith and avoid deviation from it by understanding that you can't approach this just with logic. You need help for the heart battle. You need grace. And that's where the letter ends, on purpose. Here's the final point. This is, I think, so good. I'm so thankful for this. Wonder of wonders, we are recipients of his grace. Wonder of wonders, we are recipients of his grace. The final word here, which is actually very similar to the opening word in chapter 1, grace be with you, and it's plural actually because he's talking to the whole church. Grace be to you, you all. Not law, not logic, not correct commands, not clear right and wrong, not proper exegesis. Grace be with you. Not that those other things aren't important, but we need grace to change the heart. It's God's most glorious calling card. The particular glory of his that God wants us to see and remember and bank on and live by and worship him for. It was grace that He created you. Grace that He chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. without any regard to what you would do, is completely undeserved. There is no works, righteousness, there is no meriting. it is all of grace from first to last. And it was grace that He sent Christ to atone for your sin, and grace that his spirit then was sent to you to open your eyes to Christ and grace that he drew you to him and grace that he made you new. Christian, the story of your life is a story of grace. If you're not a Christian this morning, understand, if you turn to Christ, trust him, this is your story too. It's laid right here in front of you. Come and find this to be your story. But Christian, this already is your story. In every single moment of your life, Christian, think about this. In every single moment of your life, this one and this one and this one, you stand in grace. That's true, and he wants you to know it's true. Grace be with you. You stand in the spot, on the rock of God's favor And he wants you to know the reality of his present and full grace of all of his power and all of his wisdom and all of his love and all of his care attentive to you to provide exactly what it is, whatever it is that you need right now in this moment. You stand in grace. He's present with you now and your, great is, your, your guilt is removed off of you and you are fully delightful to him and he looks on you with vast, wide, long, high, deep love. The same sort of love with which he loves the son because in grace, he puts you in Jesus. And so in grace, he's governing every moment, this one and this one and this one and this one, and this one to accomplish his purposes, to bring his kingdom to you. And that never ends. He carries you, regardless of how well you, how well you perform. He carries you to his promised kingdom of shalom. That is yours, coming to you. Grace be with you is like saying, hear, the goodness of the generous God overflowing to you and over you because of Jesus. And if you see that, you see the God who is, who is glorious and who is better than anything we can ask or imagine, who is yours in this faith, don't wander from it and don't throw it away. one you were made for and is the true lover of your heart in whose presence is fullness of joy at his right hand is pleasure forevermore that's a promise you have to fight fire with fire Eve can you imagine Adam can you imagine what it would be like yeah yeah but I also don't have to imagine I can see this one who is and who is beautiful and who is mine and I am his, I am his beloved. Grace be with you, church. To see that and believe it and hold tight to it And to bring that that gospel of grace into contact with the real world, to live it out and to know it. That's how we hold tight to and avoid properly and effectively. So let me pray now that God will cause this grace to rest on us and maybe even now as we interact with the communion elements to uniquely meet you and bless you with his certain promises me pray. Father, th- there's, a real, there's, a, there's a real possibility here that I just spill out a bunch of English words and nothing happens. We need your grace to address our hearts, to take the truth, yes, but by your grace, please address it to our hearts. And show us Jesus. For the men and women and children here, kids, young, hardly understand, teenagers who understand a lot, middle-aged and elderly, Lord, we are, we are all just a bunch of people in front of you rushing towards eternity. We pray now, Lord, would you hold us tight now by your grace, showing us Jesus. If we take these elements in our hands, Lord, meet us, bless us, and build your church to the honor of your name. Thank you. Amen.